You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. John Gray and I met last May when Jan Appeal, the global director of Arts for Chanel, invited me to be his guest on their Connects podcast. John and I got together and we spoke about family, our cookbooks, ghetto gastro, collaborating with creative partners, food activism, and a lot more. Today, though, the tables are turned, and Sean is my guest on Ruthie's Table 4. He's just had a lunch at the River Cafe, and now with Sean Owen, we're ready to pick up where we left off. So here you are. When did you get here? Did you just fly in from... I'm fresh off the plane, dropping the flame, fresh from New York, (laughs) your birth state. I know it is, 100 miles north of We still claim you. You can claim me. Yeah, it's a good state. And what are you doing here? I'm here for Freeze and the 154 Art Fair and to see you. I don't want to wait till you got to New York. I wanted to come do this. Yeah, it's nice to do it here. Well, why don't we start, as we're talking about food, with your recipe. So we asked you to choose a recipe from one of our 12 cookbooks, and you chose... I got the linguine with crab. I don't know how to pronounce it with the... Italian pronunciation, linguine al grancio, is that right? Yeah, you say it the way you like. Linguine al grancio, buongiorno. Buongiorno. Linguine with crab, serves 10. Two large male crabs, about two to three kilograms, cooked and picked. Three fresh red chilies, finely chopped. Three handfuls flat leaf parsley, finely chopped. Make sure that knife is sharp. Juice of four lemons, three garlic cloves ground to a paste, 500 grams of linguine, that Evo, a.k.a. extra version olive oil. Put the white and brown crab meat in a large bowl. Look, look, it's everybody's coming together, white and brown. Add the chili and most of the chopped parsley, the lemon juice and crushed garlic, stir in the olive oil. This sauce should be quite liquid. Cook the linguine in a generous amount of boiling salted water, then drain and stir into the crab sauce. Serve with the remaining finely chopped parsley. Okay. So why did you choose this recipe? Well, crab is a very meaningful ingredient for me. And then when I think about ghetto gastro, our signature dish involves crab. It's the triple C's, cornbread, crab, and caviar. And for me, like growing up in communities that are historically underestimated, they tell you things like, oh, the people in your community are crabs in a barrel. They don't want anybody to succeed or thrive. But, you know, crabs don't belong in a barrel. So when you think about different types of environments that humans should exist in, it should not be in environments with scarcity and lack. It should be abundance. You know, I think it's enough on this planet for us all to thrive and not just have to survive. And tell us about crab with cornbread. Corn yeah, cor- cornbread. And caviar. Yeah, so this dish, like, it, it started with the name, I want to say. Like, I feel like in 2013, we just, I was listening to this group called Triple C's, the Carroll City Cartel, and I'm like, yeah, we should do a dish named Triple C's. And then we, I just started thinking of things that would work with the letter C. So cornbread, we use as a base. And, and the dishes had iterations, like we've, done cornbread with creme fraiche and 
cucumber, but none of these things were just, they didn't work like properly. But then we were like, oh, let's just make it, let's make it opulent. And then we built the storytelling into it once we, once we found that. So when you think about cornbread, that's a collaboration between enslaved Africans and indigenous Native Americans, right? Because that's an American ingredient, corn. Then you think about the crab, again, with the crabs in a barrel. So like having that layered storytelling in the dish. And then caviar, you know, which often people reference as the pinnacle of opulence. Like you think caviar, you think truffles, right? When you think something is expensive. Like when you're on a date and they're like, do you want that supplemental caviar or truffle? You look at it across the table like, take it easy. <laughs> but yeah, so it's it's something that, that is not necessarily European. It's really like Middle Eastern. Yeah. You know, when you think about coming from the Caspian Sea, Persia, Russia also connects to that. So, and it's black. So you wanted to put the black at the top of the dish, you know, so to think about how these things could stack up to have a narrative. So tell us about Ghetto Gastro. Well, Ghetto Gastro, it's a collection of individuals from the Bronx. We use food as a vehicle to tell stories. So it's me, my partner Lester, my other partner Pierre. And we started just doing a lot of like creating experiences like around the world. Really started doing house parties at my house. Now I'm remembering my first time having caviar was caviar that Lester took from his job at Madison Square Garden that they had like extra because he was the sous chef at the Delta Suites. So they would order all these crazy ingredients like foie and, and often they didn't use them all. So he had a lot of caviar. I remember he took some foie. He made a, a beautiful torchon. I use my food stamps and go to Whole Foods or go to the farmer's market, get some produce. And we would host these dinner parties for friends at my tiny West Village apartment. And this is in 2012. And then from there, we just started doing projects with different collaborators like brands or art institutions. And they wanted the essence. And it's really about highlighting the reference material where we come from the Bronx, you know, looking at hip hop as an exercise and postmodernism, like assemblage, like taking things that people don't imagine go together and creating a new vernacular. When you describe yourself, are you a chef? Are you a cook? I've typically called myself the dishwasher within Ghetto Gastro because my partners are like formally trained, restaurant trained chefs. Whereas me, I'm good with the menu in my hand. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I handle like the business in a creative direction. I would like to think my palate is incredible just because I've tasted so many things and I have a deep love and knowledge and respect for the people that use their hands. I don't have the skill to make it all work on a plate, but the concepts are there. So it's a great collaboration. You talk a lot about collective, and I was wondering if you could tell us what collective is. What is the meaning of a collective? I think convening and being a part of a collective and, and community is essential to me because I never really took the time to become really good at anything but assembling people. So I kind of need other people to help make things that I want to exist in the world. So it's kind of been a means of survival for me, like a, a necessity. Like, and it started, I think, early when I was really young, and most of my friends were a lot older than me. So when they drew, they drew way better. And I was like, I'll never get this good, but I have a lot of ideas. So can I use them as a vessel to help create the ideas that are in my brain and look the way I want them to look? Because my hand wasn't able to create what I was thinking. And is it for profit? Is it a, it's a business? Absolutely. And then what about your work in the Bronx? 
the community efforts that we do, I feel like, in my opinion, growing up how we grew up and where we grew up and still having family members and relatives and dear friends that might be living below the poverty line or not have certain access, it's not like we just escaped the reality, you know? So it's unfortunate, but it's also, I, I do love the ground and the fact that I still live in a community that I grew up in, you know? So you're dealing with issues of broken homes, incarceration, all, all of these things that come with generations of systemic oppression. But for us, we focus on food. Food is our tool, right? So we work with organizations. I like to say we try to empower and provide resources to people that are actually doing the work. Like we have a platform and we talk about it, but we work with the Savreta family, they own La Mirada which is a Oaxacan restaurant in the South Bronx, but they're undocumented. And when the pandemic hit, they just started using the food that they had in their pantry and cooking for families and just not charging them. So we saw that work happen. We're like, oh, we need to support this. And, and then we partnered with Rethink Foods, got some money from some brands, used some of our own dollars and just like started feeding people. And also people that were forgotten about, like people that were formerly incarcerated, elders that couldn't like walk down from NYSHA to go get to the soup kitchen, like so delivering it to their door at the height of the pandemic. And they also have a community garden. So we've been doing a lot of work with them in the Bronx and then some art organizations, some stuff with Lauren Halsley, South Central LA, some organizations we work with in New Orleans. And we try to spread it out. South Bronx is one of the poorest areas in the United States. Yeah, I don't know if it's still accurate, but it definitely had the poorest congressional Mm -hmm. district Mm -hmm. in the country. Which always shocked me because when it's you shocking, think of, isn't it? It's amazing that in New York, you think poverty would be in Appalachia or in the South or yeah, like you know, in the West. like a but little town in Mississippi the, or something. Yeah. My ignorance, I was like, mm-hmm. all right, that has to be mm-hmm. somewhere different. But no, it's like in New York City. What, what do they say? Eighty blocks from Tiffany's. Like yeah. there was a movie that came out about how much how different things are. Yeah, eighty blocks from yeah. you know Fifth well, Avenue or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Access to food is very evident in poor areas of the United States or in any country. That I remember reading about the South Bronx. And if you know, if you look at the kind of access we have to food in other areas, that the access of fresh vegetables in the South Bronx was limited. It's so ironic. This is very true with the Bronx in general, not just the South part. But when you talk about food insecurity or when you talk about poverty, the Bronx is highlighted. And the thing that's so ironic about the Bronx is that the largest food distribution center in the world of its kind in the South Bronx. So much of the food that's in the Bronx leaves, but it not just leaves, right? The people in these communities are dealing with the effects of the diesel fuel emissions, right? So when you look at asthma rates in these neighborhoods, when you look at obesity or different like hypertension, high blood pressure, all the results that come from lack of a healthy diet, the lack of access and how inconvenient it is to find a spot to get fresh food. Like Hunts Point with the food distribution center is actually one of the most food insecure spots probably in the city because it's so industrial and it's like broken up. But I also think there's a lack of, we also have to talk about desire, right? And I think culturally, so many of our foods, like when people think about black American food, they think about often what they call soul food. And I think all food is soul food. But when we look at the diets that our ancestors had, they were like more and more balanced. I think for us, it's also about creating desire. And, and, and I think you create the desire through the storytelling and also making it compelling and culturally relevant for like vegetables to taste delicious in a certain way. 
We worked, um, Sean and I, for a couple of years, we went to Edible Schoolyard. Do you remember that experience of trying to teach children about vegetables, about food, through having gardens in the school? It could be on the roof, it could be in the car park, but to grow what she calls the Edible Schoolyard. Do you remember? In Shepherd's Bush, where I live, I cook with a school there. I like to bring the kids to the River Cafe, so it's always a Monday in July, usually. The culmination of the working with them is that they cook a meal for their parents, the teachers, the local community, and everyone lays a table and they serve everyone and cook. But I show them around the ki- First of all, I like hook them in by showing them the, the toilets at the River Cafe because I don't know if you've went, <laughs> but they're very bright and they're like, wow, look at these toilets. You know, I'm like, I gotta go check those out after this. <laughs> they're all like, wow. And I'm like, guess who Instagrammed the picture of themselves? So they love it. And then we show them around. And those kids from diverse areas, it's interesting to see the difference of what they know. And often some of the North African kids know a lot about herbs and broad beans and things that other kids are just like eating fish fingers every night, never mm-hmm. even seen a broad bean. You know? <laughs> it's nice to, to see that played out with the, with the young ones. I think edible schoolyard is important because when you're able to connect where the food comes from and you have an emotional connection, like if you planted a seed, tended to a garden, that carrot, just like when you walk into a restaurant where where the hospitality is great, everything's going to taste better. So it's like, how do we make it so that knowledge doesn't get left behind in the school where it could also come into the homes and be be reinforced? And some of the reasons why it's a lack of access in food in America, it's because the government subsidizes cash crops, right? So farmers are less inclined to grow fresh vegetables because of shelf life and more inclined to grow corn, soy, wheat. A lot of these Monsanto crops, it ends up destroying the nitrogen in the soil because people aren't rotating regularly so the agriculture isn't regenerative. And also it drives the cost up of fresh vegetables. So when you're looking at calorie to calorie and when people are making economic decisions, it's often not going to be the freshest, best option for your health. Yeah. But it is also to do with all of what society values, you know, how we feed our children in school, how we treat sick people in hospitals, really what we value as a society in terms of feeding and educating people. That's a basic. We got to put humans over profit. It's a human right to eat well and to feed our people. I agree. I agree. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Help helps is a maxim I believe in. We all carry around stress and hardship, and when we keep it inside, it starts to chip away. Therapy is a safe place, and therapy is for everyone. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Ruthie today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Ruthie. BetterHelp.com slash Ruthie. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV True Crime Podcast, to live and die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. 
all these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The River Cafe is excited to announce the return of our Italian Christmas gift boxes. Our alternative to the traditional hamper, they bring you all of our favorite ingredients and food and homewares from the River Cafe kitchen, the vineyards, and the designers from all over Italy. They're available to pre-order now on shoptheriverCafe.co.uk. So you grew up in the South Bronx? I grew up between East Harlem, the South Bronx, and the North Bronx. I spent the majority of my time in the North Bronx. And North Bronx is on the way to Connecticut, right? It's going on the way to out. Connecticut, Westchester, upstate. It's yeah, like right it's on like the border leaving. of Westchester yeah. County. Yeah, yeah. And tell me about growing up. What, what was your home like? So my childhood was interesting because my mother, single parent, we lived on the floor in Co-op City, which is a Mitchell Llama kind of rent-controlled, lower-middle-class like housing. They created opportunities for people to get homes and like have fixed rent and be in a beautiful community. Mm-hmm. My grandmother lived on the same floor as me, so it was like a real... And my, my grandmother and my aunt, my aunt Nakai, so it was like a a firm matriarchal situation. It was I was the only male in my family. It was my great grandfather who had three daughters, my grandmother being one of them. All of those daughters, except my Aunt Sheila, she didn't have children. They all both had two daughters. And then my mother had me. So it was like all of these women and then me. So even at a young age, I felt like I had to take care of things. Like I had a burden that I just self-imposed. Nobody like put pressure on me. Everybody was doing fine. But I felt like I needed to take care of these women that took care of me. And they're all educators. So I grew up like with knowledge being important. I always struggled with um, my behavior, though, allegedly. Did you feel that you had to take care of them food-wise as well? Did your mom cook? Uh, my grandmother's not going to listen to this. My grandmother wasn't the best cook, which is probably <laughs> why my mother... Mm-hmm. went hard to become a great cook. And my mother's also just a different type of person where it's like she gets interested in something and she studies. So my mother has two culinary degrees, one from the Natural Gourmet School of Cooking in New York, and she went to a special pastry school in Chicago. Whereas me, when I'm interested in something, I start a business and learn about it just from doing the thing. But I was able to benefit from my mother taking these courses and learning how to do the thing. And so, yeah, she's a really good cook. But my mother often worked during the day at a, like, hair salon. She used to wash Lenny Kravitz and Michael Jackson's hair yeah. at this. I want to say it, it was John Atkinson is the hair salon she worked on Fifth Avenue. That job exposed her to a different type of eating. So she was going to, like, the French bakery for lunch or, like, the Italian spot or the Indian curry spot. So... Naturally, I, I kind of inherited that curiosity about food. So she often didn't have time to cook because she, after work, she would go work on her, her college degree. And then at night, it was just us. She picked me up, 
from my grandmother's or the babysitter or whatever. And then we'd go out for dinner. That was like our bonding time. And at this moment, I was living in East Harlem, like 100th Street between 1st and 2nd and Metro in a project called Metro North. So we go to the Upper East Side often. And I remember this restaurant called First Walk. It was a Cantonese restaurant. And we would often just sit there and eat. And I remember it was this older woman, an older Jewish lady. She was a regular too. So we would, we would eat there and see each other all the time. And I asked her, I was a social kid. I asked her about, you know, what she ordered. She's like, oh yeah, I always get the lemon chicken. And then that night I ordered the lemon chicken and I was like, this is not good. And I told her what she should order and why she should order that. And I want to say it was probably the orange chicken or the sesame chicken. And I was like, it has a sweetness. It comes with the broccoli fried garlic. And this is how I was thinking about ingredients and the assemblage of things coming together to make a dish. And I remember she tasted it the next time we were there. And she was like, you know what? I ordered what you said I should order. You're such a remarkable boy. And I remember the confidence I felt. Because you know your parents and your family members tell you you're excellent, you're great, you could be anything you want. But getting that external validation gave me such a boost in confidence. And I think subconsciously, I just associated food with that feeling for the rest of my life. It, it took me as an adult to like start spinning the block and come back around to knowing that food is where I find joy. And the communion with people and all of the things that food brings, the window and the culture. Even growing up in the hood in the Bronx, you go to the Chinese spot and you understand like, oh, People eat with things other than forks and knives. There are chopsticks. Let's learn more about this. And I'm just a super curious person and I love history and people's stories and, you know. So interesting. I think also it's the sort of thing that even the young guys who I work with at the cafe, there's people of all ages here. And I always say to the chefs, there's no shame in wanting to have a night off work because you always feel like if you're a chef, you have to work really long hours. There's no shame in going out and saying, I want to read about food or I want to go and cook and cook with friends or go out and eat as groups. And they don't eat in places I imagine that Ruthie frequents, but they're together and talking. And, you know, more than ever, you see people trying to put their phones away so they actually communicate over a meal of whatever it is. And they have a constant dialogue about food. It's really important we're really bad people to go out for dinner with, though, because if I go out with my partner, I try not to talk too much about the food because it's <laughs> probably boring for a not. And I'm just like trying to keep that to myself. So I'm not like, this is, this is like too much salt or this isn't plated how I want it. And you know, it's every day is that conversation with yourself about what you're eating and where you're eating, isn't it? You got to just pick better friends that, that, that <laughs> want to talk about the food. Like my friend Dream is sitting here now and she has a concept called, I don't know if she trademarked this, but food top. So it's like it's like knowing people that you'll kind of submit to with their restaurant recommendation, right? So she's probably the boss of most of her people in terms of picking a spot where we're eating. I'm probably going to pick what we're ordering. She says I'm her food top, where she'll trust me to make the right judgment on a restaurant or someplace to go. And then I have one person, my friend Giorgio from Italy, who I don't want to use my brain. If I'm in Italy with him, I'm like, yo, Giorgio, wherever you take us, I know it's good. Do the thing. I don't I don't want to have to think about it. So it's like being able to bond. And like I've built community. Food is usually the connective tissue. Like if we love food, we're going to like have deeper conversation. We're going to break bread. We're going to do things and, and vibe. And I think also people that care about what they put into their body and like the ritual of that and how important that is really have a different value for life. Like not people that just have a bunch of money and want to go to all the fancy spots and it's just like another thing to do just to check off Michelin starred restaurants. But people that like, it could just be getting a bagel or a cinnamon roll from a bakery or like knowing the right bodega in New York to get the chopped cheese from. But like people that consider that part of their day, 
I think are like really great people it's to also be around. Very revealing. The restaurants that people like, or where they like to go, or what they choose to eat in a restaurant. I think it tells you a lot about a person, and that's why sometimes when you do have to recommend some place that you would like, you really are thinking, well. That is telling a story about me. This is true. We might have to get some like restaurant therapists. Like it might, that, that might be a whole nother lane <laughs> of, right. of, of practice. <laughs> what do you think about, say, if you eat out and you're with friends and you're trying to break down what that is and what's good about it? Is it the combination of the food that's on the plate or is it a combination of the people or the room or the lighting or where you are in the world? You know, because often I think amazing meals more than just food aren't they they're about an atmosphere where people feel like they're welcome they're sitting on a comfortable chair or but trying to create that setting is also part of what makes that experience so good isn't it I think the hospitality starts before you walk in the door like from how do you book the restaurant like what's the story like of how you got there were you not able to get a booking and you just walked up and they took care of you I have some crazy stories that are just we never thought we were going to be able to get a table and I don't know if it made the food taste better but it does elevate the experience so I think all of those things come into place but flavor is of the utmost importance as well and different people have different priorities like Ruthie said you can tell a lot because some people are strictly ambiance and they'd be like oh the food is great in this place and then you go and you're like I don't know about the food it's a lot of pretty people in the room but I don't know if the food is really hitting but then you can have really good food and have a, a, an arrogant waiter you know that makes you feel small or insignificant I always say to the person who answers the phone to take the booking this is your first introduction to the person who's going to come here how you answer the phone how welcoming you sound how you feel it's the most important job is that receptionist answering a phone to take a booking you know I think it tells you a lot and until from that moment when they book the table to not when they've left the table not when they've paid the bill not when they've kind of walked out and said goodbye it's when they're in their car and the door is closed then they're not yours anymore but up until that moment they're kind of yours I think the first impression is essential like you said like that first barrier like when you cross the threshold into the realm it should always be warm, welcoming, and considerate. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So tell me about what you're doing now. What Because you're working also with Nike, you're working with big companies, how do you marry that with also the work that you're doing in the South Bronx? So when I think about working with these brands, I think of it as not just working with the brands for money, but also meeting people where they are. And we call it putting the medicine in the Kool-Aid, right? So if I want to talk to teenagers that are in high school that are doing certain things, they might not want a verbose explanation of what food deserts are or why these things impact them or why it's a certain type of food available in their neighborhood. But when we do a sneaker release with Jordan, that brings them into our world to where they might be more keen to listen or participate in some of the, th- the matters that affect them in different ways. So a lot of it is like, yeah, we're going to do the work and collaborate because it's cool, it's fun. But it's also when people associate you with these things that they feel like are a part of their lives and what they care about in a passive way, they might really be able to join your community and, and connect with you deeper. So we just try to think about, like, like when we mentioned earlier, thinking about what do we want to exist and how do we create the things that we want and layer it with meaning where it's not shallow and it's not just about materialism and consumerism. It's like, how do we create a new formula for how business should be done? Because just like Ghetto Gastro didn't exist, the River Cafe didn't exist before you dreamt it up. Once you dream it up, now it's a model and you could keep refining it, but it also inspires and it becomes a platform for other things to happen. And I think that's how you scale change, that spark thought, create community, and then it's step by step. Do you think the cultural identity of food, you know, identifying a culture through the food. Is that important to you? Do you think we've passed that now? You know, I think it's always important to cite sources and pay homage to where things come from, especially if they're coming from places or voices that have been silenced for a very long time. But I think it's also important to collaborate and create. I think some of the most beautiful things are are mixes and collisions of culture. And when I think about hip hop, Dream loves this because she she knows I love talking about hip hop. It's a collision of Break beats, jazz samples, different drums, Puerto Rican, black, Jewish people, white people creating things. I think it's a beautiful thing that has impacted and changed the world that we live in. What about your book, A Black Power Kitchen? Tell us about that. For us, when we think about black power, you know, we think about how long black people have been creating value in the world, but have been left out of the part where they capture the value that they create. So for us being unapologetically black, boisterous, loud about it, we try to base it in academic thought, which is why I keep people like Dream around me to keep me honest. It's just important. And I think it's also like ghetto gastro. It could be a polarizing idea, right? People see a word like black power and they, they could be offended or, or, or afraid of it. But for us, it's really about leaning into the beautiful things from 
our ancestors. So when, when I think about like black power, that's a, a phrase coined by Kwame Torre, aka Stokely Carmichael, who was a revolutionary. I know who he was. Yeah, from the Bronx though. Trinidadian descent, but from the Bronx. And yeah, he married Miriam McKeever. Okay. Probably in the sixties. I guess she was from maybe Johannesburg. She was South African and she had this beautiful, beautiful voice. And she could do this thing called the click. We all knew her music. And then there was Stokely Carmichael, who was this great political force, you know, of, of in the black movement of the 60s. And then suddenly he married her. Stokely Carmichael was so handsome. And then he married Miriam McCabe. It was like this, wow. It's the know? Bronx. It's the Bronx tap water. <laughs> you know, it gives a little extra charm, a little extra riz. Food is a tool for liberation. You know, when you think about how lack of access to food could often be a tool for op oppression, it's also a tool for liberation, like to tell stories of the ancestors, of potential futures, of love and convening and communion. I, I think the dinner table is the first social network, you know, so people break bread, share ideas. It might be a little bit of trolling and arguing, but a lot of it went down at the table. So, Well, before we say goodbye, and we are so happy to have you here, and we'll have to do this again. And yeah. again this is our second time together. We often say that food is, you know, food is staving off hunger, it's for sharing, it's for cultural heritage, as you were explaining, it's for alleviating, you know, for gaining access to, to choice. It's also comfort. And so I suppose my last question to you is to ask you, if you needed comfort, is there food that you would go for? Or would it be that crab caviar and cornbread? It could be anything. Every day is a different, it's, it's a different thing. The answer right now, man, that walnut amaretto tart, very comforting with the pistachio. So I took some of my pistachio ice cream and put a bit of it in my espresso so I could wake up from the, from the flight. <laughs> but that, wow, that was extremely comforting. Well, thank you. Thank you, Sean. It was good. Yeah? That sounds so good. Thank you for having me. <laughs> really, really appreciate it. Thank you. It's lovely to see you. Thank you for it's, it's always a pleasure. Ruthie's Table 4 is produced by Atomized Studios for iHeartRadio. It's hosted by Ruthie Rogers. It's produced by Willem Malinsky. Our executive producers are Zad Rogers and Faye Stewart. Our production manager is Caitlin Paramore. This episode has additional contributions by Sean Winnowen. Special thanks to everyone at the River Cafe. I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. And we host Stages Podcast. Binge close to 100 episodes. Hear the inside stories from backstage and behind the scenes as we go beyond the resume and into the heart of creativity and what it really takes to be in the business of show business. Don't miss our chats with this season's Tony nominees. If you love theater and entertainment, you are going to love Stages Podcast. Subscribe to Stages Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit us at stagespodcast.net. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. This week, I talked to Tiffany Haddish in a hilarious, deep, thoughtful interview where we dive into family trauma, grief, sobriety, love, and dating. I got a big heart, and I'm very forgiving, but, like, don't abuse it. It's been abused enough. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Trust me. 
You won't want to miss this one.